Good evening, grave robbers. Ooh, that that doesn't feel good with this episode. Uh, welcome to the television graveyard. We are your TV necromancers, Laura Prince and Noah Houlihan. We've come here tonight to examine the spirits of past tell- Oh, this feels really ghoulish with this episode. Uh, stay doomed. With me as always is TV's Noah Houlihan. To Sharon Tate's amazing ass. May it find her its way back to us someday. Uh, it's Razzie Month, y'all. Um, yeah, all of the graveyard and death iconography that we use for the show feels outright ghoulish with yeah. the haunting of Sharon Tate, today's episode. Well, I believe in our canon, we are not in the television graveyard today. We are in the, uh, the movie mausoleum. Razzie land! Razzie land. I just like making you give me that face. Uh, and uh, I, before we get started, I think this actually is a very strange thing I need to say. All right. Uh, possible spoilers to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Yeah, uh, that makes perfect sense, actually. Because we might end up discussing that. So I yeah, know we... that's not what you signed up for with this podcast, but it might come up. This is The Haunting of Sharon Tate. Um, so let's actually really quickly... 2019 would have been the 50th anniversary of the infamous uh, Tate LaBianca murders. Yes. Which were on August uh, 8th and 9th, 1969, yes. in California. And they were done by the Manson family. Yes. Led by cult leader Charles Manson. Charles Manson uh, basically told his followers to do this. And both The Haunting of Sharon Tate and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood were put out to coincide with the 50th anniversary of the murders. Yeah. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's original release date was the 50th anniversary to the day. Yeah. And that was seen, uh, for good reasons, as being tacky. Yeah. And they pushed it back to earlier in the summer. Because, like, 50 years sounds like a, a long time, but people who knew Sharon Tate are still alive. Yeah, Sharon was murdered very young. Yeah. Uh, she died in her late 20s. So, so, yeah, people who knew her, her younger siblings are still only like in their 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. Her husband, Roman Polanski, is still alive. Right. Uh, he is a very controversial figure in his own right, owing to the rape of a, an underage young woman. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he is currently, I believe, living in France because he is fighting extradition. To answer for his crimes. Yeah, this sounds like a real fun thing to make a movie about, doesn't it? Yeah. Let alone a Razzie film. Let alone a film that seven production companies are credited on. Yeah, there are, like, we were like, this is getting ridiculous how many different... There were four vanity plates. And, like, long vanity plates. Yeah. Like, bad robot length or more. Yeah, because one was Lionsgate, and then I didn't recognize the rest of them. Yeah, Lionsgate and then four, three smaller companies. And we laughed and we were like, oh my god, there's four production companies. And then in the credits, three additional companies are listed. <laughs> yeah. So I want you to know that it took seven companies to make this film. Make this garbage film. So, th there's so many confusing things about this. So we got a lot to get through here. Uh, it starts with a... An Edgar Allan Poe 
epigram. Oh, you're right. I forgot. Yeah. And like I saw that, my first thought was like, oh, why, why drag him into this? Yeah, it's uh, from the poem "A Dream Within a Dream," and it's you know, is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream. Yeah. So it sets up some Inception vibes for some reason. Uh, it to me this felt like teenager with a live journal. Like, look how deep I am. I read an Edgar Allan poem last year in English class. This is one of my least favorite tropes. Okay. Like, like especially in books. Like when you start a chapter and it's like, here's an unrelated quote. I'm like, don't, I don't care. I've seen it done really well. Uh, Watchmen does it extremely well. Um, the Disaster Artist, which I'm currently reading, really does it really well because it only pulls quotes from two sources. Okay. And since the Disaster Artist jumps back and forth in its narrative, uh, the source kind of tells you where you are in the narrative. Okay, interesting. If it's Sunset Boulevard, it's during the making of The Room. If it's The Talented Mr. Ripley, it's earlier on in Greg and Tommy's friendship. Huh. So I I've seen that. it done well. I don't see it done well a lot in film. Yeah. I'm not a fan. But I, I have a theory on why this happens that we will get into a little later. Okay. So we start with an interview, a black and white interview with Hilary Duff. Mm-hmm. So it's an interview with Sharon Tate in which she's explaining, they ask her something along the lines of, Have you ever had what some might term a psychic experience? Yes. In fact, I have. I guess that's what it was, anyway. I guess you could call it a nightmare. It was a terribly frightening and disturbing thing for me. My husband, Roman, and I had recently rented this beautiful home up in the hills of Hollywood. It's been around for quite some time, and many famous people have lived there before us. Lillian Gish and Cary Grant, most recently, the record producer, Terry Melcher, and his girlfriend, Candace Bergen, who are friends of ours. Anyway, it was about a week or so after we moved in, and I was awoken by something in the middle of the night. So I turned on the light, and that's when I saw this strange man just standing in the doorframe of our bedroom. So I got out of bed. And I followed him down into the living room. And that's when I saw two people had been tied to the rafters in the ceiling. And, and as I moved closer, I realized it was my friend, Jay Sebring, and me. And both of us had been cut open at the throat. What I gathered from this is this is a real interview that actually happened. Potentially. Oh. Uh, it was allegedly published. Well, it was actually published in Fate magazine a year after her death. Oh, okay. So it was published posthumously by Fate magazine. Mm. So there's a lot of controversy uh, on whether it's a real interview or not. Interesting. Because the Sharon, uh, obviously the Manson family murders 
immediately were a cult sensation, especially like Sharon Tate is, and if uh, anyone else is like kind of considered this idea, it's quote, the perfect victim. Yeah. She is white. She is young. She is beautiful. She is pregnant, but she's married. Right. So she's kind of this like symbol of all that Western society finds good and virtuous. Yeah, the, like someone who should not die. And on top of that, she's rich and she is famous. Mm-hmm. So she is kind of seen as like this idol figure who, and like that's the kind of death, celebrity death that there becomes a mythos around. Right. James Dean, Marilyn Monroe, and these murders were so mysterious. And they say like these murders broke the 60s. Yeah. The free love and, like, the peace and love all were kind of ended with the Manson family murders. Wow. It kind of, like, broke the bubble of the 60s. Huh. Interesting. So, she does, we see Hilary Duff giving this interview. Um, I want to say it's Hilary Duff because we do see archive footage later of something else. Yes. And I have things about this. So, we see... The, we see her have the premonition. Right. Um, and I will say, like, that seems like a good thing to, it's an interesting enough idea to make a movie about. It's like, what if Sharon Tate had predicted her own death? That question doesn't really get answered in this movie, but it's an interesting question to ask. Yeah, and we see the strange man, who's clearly supposed to be Charles Manson. Right. Who looks like... Uh, great value brand Sirius Black. Yeah. <laughs> he looks like Gary Oldman as Sirius Black. But the 60s! Mm-hmm. Uh, and we mostly see him in shadow. Yeah, you never really get a good look at him. So then the next thing we get is one year later and we see uh, a newscast. We hear a newscaster in voiceover announcing the deaths of Sharon Tate and everyone else in the house. We realize that Jay Sebring, her best friend, is played by Aaron Samuels. Yes. Um, You may know from Mean Girls. Yeah, his name is Jonathan Bennett, but anyone who's listening to this would probably know him as Aaron Samuels from Mean Girls. Yes, or not Ryan Reynolds' Van Wilder. Um, Which leads me to the question of who is the audience for this movie? Because this is, with Hilary Duff and Jonathan Bennett, this seems like it's trying to aim at people who were... Young teenagers in, like, 03, 04, 05. Yeah, I guess, like, the 27-year-old crowd, 26. Yeah, people in their, like, mid to late 20s. And the credits roll over the blood-soaked bodies. It's, like, these long, loving shots of each body. And the... It looks about as convincing as Johnny's suicide in the room. Yeah. Like, it's very artful. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, everything is very pretty. Yeah. Very gory. Um, not Actually, no, not very gory. Very bloody. Very bloody. Yeah, that's a good way to, to put it. Because it's, they're all covered in blood, but you don't see anything graphic. Right. Just blood-soaked clothes and whatnot. And, like, it's this very long, and this is the first time in the movie I'm uncomfortable. And Because we also get archival footage of, what is it, Squeaky's interview? I'm not sure. We definitely get archival footage of one of the girls who committed the murder. Oh, Squeaky wasn't there. 
Oh. You're thinking of Squeaky Fromm, who yeah. uh, famously attempted to assassinate Gerald Ford. She was not present at the murders. Oh. Well, it's one of the girls is getting interviewed. I think it's Sadie Atkins. That, that, that sounds right. And then also, like, shots of the actual house. Yeah. I, we don't see any actual dead bodies, but we do see, like, the actual house where this took place. Yes. Uh, so, then it says three days later. Or three or days, three days earlier. earlier. Three days Wednesday, earlier. Wednesday, August 6th, 1969. Uh, I make a joke that clearly in the archive footage, there's this, like, chain link fence that they roll out of the way. So they kind of need to have that as a set piece. Mm-hmm. But they they very clearly just built it for this movie. And it's not up against anything flush. Right. So anyone can walk around it. Yeah. And there's like a big beware of dog sign on it. Yeah. And I was like, this dog's going to get out. Yeah. <laughs> so we see Jay Sebring and Sharon Tate in a convertible driving up to the house. Jay is a famous hairstylist to the stars. And the film... Uh, he and Sharon had been lovers before she met Roman Polanski. Right. She actually, I believe, left him for Roman Polanski. Right. Uh, she remained friends with him until, mm-hmm. obviously, both of their deaths. And uh, they had a lot of mutual friends. They ran a lot of the same social circles. Their funerals were on the same day. Oh, wow. Uh, several hours apart to enable people to attend both. Oh, That's wow. That's how many mutual friends they had. That's crazy. So the two of them were very close friends in real life. Uh, they clearly underscore a lot of flirtation. Mm-hmm. And um, it's very important to note that Sharon is super pregnant. Yes. Like, like very pregnant. She's eight and a half months pregnant. I cannot emphasize enough how pregnant She's she is. She's very pregnant. Because this is kind of important to me with how her physicality for the rest of the story. Yeah. So her friend asks her a question and she responds. At this moment, I pause the movie. Mm -hmm. Because up until then, we've had like these monologues of people uh, being interviewed. This is the first line of dialogue in the film. We are 10 minutes deep. Yes. (laughs) I was like, come on, give me something. Yeah, like the movie has already felt quite long. It's only a 90 minute film. And, like, there's that includes credits. So, like, it's only an 80-minute film. So, two of her friends are already there. Abigail Folger, who is heiress to the Folger's Coffee Fortune. Mm-hmm. And Wolchek. Yes. Who is Roman's best friend. Yes. And he immediately says something like, Our beautiful Sharon. And where is that red bastard husband of yours? Uh, hmm? Oh! Oh! Oh, it's... And I was like, oh, he's doing a silly voice. When he saw his friend. And then he proceeds to talk that way through the rest of the movie. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. He has a terrible Polish accent. Mm. He has a poorly done Polish accent. Uh, Wolczyk immediately dip kisses. The very pregnant Sharon Tate. Which one, I'd be super worried about. She's going to weigh more than you think she does because she's super, super pregnant. Mm -hmm. Two, I'd be worried about dropping her. Because she's super, super pregnant. Three, I don't dip kiss my best friend's husband? No, I don't think so. So I, it's very weird. Uh, there's a lot of times where the movie seems to not really want to acknowledge her pregnancy. Yeah, because it's inconvenient. Yeah, and this is like kind of part of it. So uh, Roman is in London working on a script. 
So that, so we don't see, that's why he's not in the movie at all. Yeah. Um, we never see. There's no actor cast as Roman Polanski. Right. Uh, which I get because he would be a different, a difficult character to make sympathetic. Yeah. Uh, so he's a non-presence in the film, essentially. Uh, they, If they're going to build a romance, they're building it around Sharon and Jay. Right. Even though there's no question that, like, Jay is not the father of Sharon's child. That's mm-hmm. never brought up. Right. So Abigail has set up the nursery for Sharon, and Sharon's really upset about it. Yeah. Sharon's eight and a half months pregnant. If you haven't set up your nursery eight and a half months pregnant, mm-hmm. what are you? She's like, she's waiting for Roman to come back. That's what she was like. Oh, I was going to set this up with Roman. And I was like, but my, my, you're going to have the kid really soon. I, I, you're right. My theory is this is showing how helpless Sharon Tate is and how not in control she is. Because all these factors have already happened around her. And that's just kind of like setting the stage for that. Doesn't do a good job, but I think that's the point. Yeah, so she's upset. Everyone is drinking and smoking. uh, Including Sharon doesn't smoke. But Sharon is visibly drinking wine in several scenes. Yeah, it's the early... or No, it's 69 that this Yeah, it's the late 60s. So maybe like they're not as informed... uh, also, I believe you're allowed to have one glass of red wine while pregnant. I learned that from Scrubs. She's drinking champagne. Ooh. <laughs> and it would be just as easy to not show her drinking. Yeah, there's not really a good reason to do this. Because it's going to take a 2019 audience out of it. Yep, sure did. <laughs> um, So I was just like, why is she drinking? And then Jay gives... An incredibly inappropriate toast. But here's to Orson Welles. And to Sharon Tate Polanski and her once spectacular ass. May it find its way home soon. <laughs> uh, so they're all chatting about at the dinner table about fate. Yes. Because fate is a big theme in this movie. Earth to Sorry. Sharon. You okay? Oh, yeah. I'm fine. What is going on inside that pretty little head of yours? I guess it was what you were just saying. Like, how the simplest of choices can affect the entire outcome of our lives. Boytuck, what if you had never had that run-in with Roman at your school dance? And what if I had never wandered onto that movie set when I was 17? I mean, I had always dreamed of being an actress, but what if I hadn't have been at that exact place on that exact day? Do you know what I mean? Like, is life just some random series of coincidences or is there some greater plan this is the moment i realized that hillary duff's imitation of sharon tate is incredibly irritating yeah and inaccurate (laughs) yeah i watched a clip of sharon tate and i see what hillary duff is attempting to do but it doesn't work not at all um she is clearly attempting to imitate sharon tate Mm -hmm. Uh, sharon tate has what's called a mid-atlantic accent right um, a 60s movie star accent, essentially. Gotcha. And Hilary Duff's attempt to emulate it makes her sound like a baby. Yeah. So it's like, it's the like the sexy baby thing. And it this... reminds me of that episode of Community 
Oh. When uh, Annie sings the sexy baby song, like, I don't know anything about Christmas. Mm-hmm. Boop, boop, ba-doo, sex. Yeah, and this will not be the only time we're like, hey, they look like a baby is something that comes up. Oh, this. God. I, I forgot about that <laughs> clip. I hate it. All right. Um, yeah, so my next note was Hillary Duff has an awful baby voice. Research. Does Tate talk like that? No. Um. <laughs> But I can see what Hillary Duff is trying to do. Yeah. Because she is clearly not, she's not talking like Hillary Duff. She's Hillary Duff doing an impression of Sharon Tate that is not better than my unprepared yeah. Sharon Tate impression. It's not. When good. I have watched literally a minute and a half of a clip. Yeah. To see whether Hillary Duff talked like that. Sharon is worried, uh, she confides in Jay that she's worried that Roman is having an affair. Right. And she's upset about it. And this is entirely irrelevant to anything else that happens in this film. I I think it's there to set up that we're not real, like, because a 2019 audience knows Roman Polanski's not a nice person. Right. So it's supposed, and it's supposed to also make us sympathetic to the fact that, like, the body language and the staging of this clearly make... Jay and Sharon are romance. Yeah, I guess they it's don't to... do any. They don't technically cross a line and cheat, but like I think we're supposed to want her to run off with Jay. Yeah, it's to get us to cheer for them. So, uh, we see their dog. Yes, this will come up later. It's a it's a cute dog, border collie looking dude. Mm-hmm. It's great. Uh, someone knocks on the door, and then Abigail brings down. Like, a Ouija-type board? It's not a Ouija board. Yeah, I, I I forget exactly what it was called. It was like the eye of something. Yeah. And basically, you ask it questions, and then you drop a marble in it. It's like roulette. Kind of like roulette, and it has a bunch of letters around it. And then there's also a no, and I assume there's a yes, but we never could find the yes on this tray. Right. So you ask it a question, you throw the marble in, and you see where it lands. But then, it cuts to the shot... Where Jay is very clearly... Wolchek is clearly holding it up. Yeah, he's holding it up so that it goes to no. And the two questions they ask Abigail asks, will Sharon have a beautiful baby girl? And gets no. Yeah. Which means Abigail crows like, I knew knew you were having a boy. And then Sharon asks, will I live a long and happy life? And we never see her see the answer to that question. But it lands on no. Yeah, we see it. Yeah. It's... A crappy attempt at dramatic irony. Yeah. Kind of like we know that, uh, we know that Sharon will never have a baby, much less. Although, uh, she did have a son. Oh. Um, I, he died as well in the Manson family murders, but at eight and a half months, the baby would have been viable. Huh. And so, like, they did name him posthumously after her grandfather and Roman Polanski's grandfather. Oh. So his name was Paul. Interesting. And they were actually buried together. Um, she's holding Paul. Aww. I wanted to tell you that because it does play into the ending. Okay. Interesting. So um, I did a lot of research on the Tate-LaBianca murders for this because I this was based on true events, which is unusual for yeah, that's movies right. we've seen. We're a true crime podcast now. We're going to po- get all popular now because we're talking about true crime. Stay sexy. Don't watch bad movies. <laughs> Can we take that? Can we do that? Stay sexy, don't watch bad movies? Sure, sure. Uh, But do watch bad movies, because otherwise no one's going to like us anymore. (laughs) Um, 
So somebody comes to the door and Wolchek answers and we hear him like an idiot scream, uh, no, this is the home of Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. Yeah. Now I need to bring up again, Sharon Tate is a famous actress yeah. and Roman Polanski is a famous director. You just told a weird drifter <laughs> yeah. that famous people live here. Could you imagine if like in 2020 somebody knocked on the door and was like, hey, I'm looking for my friend Frank. And the guy who answered the door go, Frank, this is Tom Hanks's house. Clink. No. Because, like, at the very, very least, that's a house robbery waiting to happen. Yeah. Even, like, outside of the Manson family. Like, this is going to go a full Home Alone situation. Not the last time I'm going to bring up Home Alone. No. So then the scary man goes back to his car. Wolchek locks the door and guides Sharon back to the table. Uh, The next thing we hear, uh, Jay has gone home for the night, wherever Jay lives. Right. Because they're only, like, they're near the Hollywood Hills, so they're not, like, actually far from civilization. Right. They talk frequently about how they have plans to go to this fancy restaurant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not like a cabin in the woods situation. Yeah, like, they're not that isolated. Which, again, is going to undercut the entire premise of this film. Mm -hmm. So then we see it's 12.15 in the morning. Wolchick and Abigail are doing it. Yes. Real loud. We, we see him in his un- his tidy whities again. Because um, he's in his tidy whities a lot. And Sharon's trying to sleep and has the only relatable moment in this movie where she's laying in bed, looks at the clock and goes, Seriously, guys? <laughs> yes. Which, like, if you've been to college, we've all had that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you've ever had a roommate. So then Sharon hears a spoopy noise. Sharon's dog starts to cry. Um, my next note is, Jesus, what a boring horror movie. They try to execute a jump scare, but they don't do it, right? Was this the hand or was this... This is the guy in the window. Yeah, so she's like, she's in the kitchen and she like opens up a fridge and then when she closes the fridge, there's a man standing in the window. But it's so out of focus that had there not been a musical sting, you probably would not have noticed it. Yeah, like I've got to say... The composer's trying real hard. Oh, Phantom? Yes. The composer, uh, the person who did all this music is Phantom. With an with F. With an F. Um, who I've not done any research on. But they are trying real hard to do horror movie music. It's unfortunately not synced well. Ooh, I'm, I'm going to get real upset later about that statement. Yeah. Well, it's not, it's not synced very well. Mm-hmm. So, like, the musical sting happens, like, before or after it should. Yeah. So the dog escapes the house, and no one goes out to look for the dog. No, they're like, ah, whatever. So I was like, what is, what? Why include the dog? What the hell? The dog's gonna go do dog things. Sharon's upset and wants the gate checked in the morning. The next day. Yeah, so they go to bed. And then they go on a hike? Yeah, again. Sharon is eight and a half months pregnant. Yeah, let's go for a hike in the sun. She's cute Hollywood pregnant where she's gained no weight except she has the bump. Yeah, she's got something to rub for effect. Yeah, she's got, I mean, she's got a big bump because she's supposed to be pretty, pretty pregnant. Mm -hmm. But she like, no other weight. She's gained no weight in her face. Her ankles aren't swollen. By eight and a half months of pregnancy, most people are so incredibly uncomfortable Mm -hmm. that like, a hike usually is not... Yeah. Let's let's venture far away from the house. 
No. And again, like, and this is the 60s. No one has a cell phone. If something happens at eight and a half months pregnant, mm-hmm. what's Abigail going to do? Abigail is about Sharon's height and very thin. She can't haul Sharon's butt back to the house. No. It's not even since it's not as, as spectacular as it was. So then we see two young women walk by and glare at them. And then we get a suspenseful music sting. Because this is a non-event. Yeah, foreshadowing. Because it's two Ooh. young girls and it's not eerie music. It's like jump scare sting music. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to be like, oh, scary. Yeah, yeah, that two people were also walking by on a brightly lit day. And there's nothing, like, the the two women are not armed. The two women do not say anything to Sharon and Abigail. They do nothing. But It's literally like, if I was walking down a path and I didn't like someone's shirt, like, they had, like, a slogan I didn't agree with or something, <laughs> it was, like, the same look I would have given them. Yeah. Maybe those two girls were going, yo, why is that super pregnant lady out <laughs> in the middle of nowhere? I, I think we're supposed to get from this is like, oh, Sharon's having a premonition. She feels like this is a bad, she gets bad vibes and wants to go back. Unaffected. Very stupid. So they, but they, Sharon and Abigail do decide, like, let's go back to the house. And that's when they discover that the dog has been killed. And Laura, Laura leaves. Can yeah. I swear? Fuck this movie. <laughs> um, I never swear on this podcast. I was so upset. And like, I looked up something else. I looked up another fact. Yeah. So I saw that the dog died. Okay. So when I saw the bad CGI cloud of flies, I got up and was like, it's time to go get a cookie. Yeah. And like, they try to do the grotesque thing where it's like covered in maggots and stuff like that. But the, the CGI maggots don't look right, just in general. And then... Uh, Sharon's very upset, and then we cut to them, like, trying to get over it, and, uh, well, the we cut dog's to, getting buried. Yeah, Wolchek and Stephen. Yes. Stephen Parent. Stephen Parent arrives. Bury the dog. Stephen is a caretaker who is living, they say he's living in a tra- in a camper? Yeah. He's living in a hollowed out bus. Yeah. There's nothing camper about this. Um... And Sharon's angry that nobody told her this guy was living there. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently the old caretaker left. Yeah. And now it's Stephen, who is very young and extraordinarily pale. He's very pale. He definitely shouldn't have been digging a hole in the sun with that complexion. And loves Sharon Tate, like, a bit too much. Like, he's a bit of a creeper fan. Yeah, but he's, like, uh, he's a little awkward. But he's... Not, like, evil. He's just awkward and a little weird. Yeah, he's a bit off. And uh, Wolchek says, like, maybe I should have brought the dog inside. And Sharon snaps, maybe you should have. Yeah. He absolutely should have. Yeah, the dog is dead now. There's no question about it. Like, maybe if I took the dog inside, it wouldn't have died. Correct. (laughs) So... We also realize they've only referred to the dog as the dog. Yeah, I never did get a name, did we? Yeah, I don't think we ever got a name for the dog. So Sharon's in the nursery um, crying over a dog plushie, which is super justified. Mm -hmm. Her dog literally just died. 
Yeah. Uh, there's a weird suspense moment with the closet. Yeah, like she looks in the closet and... Nothing, nothing happens? Nothing happens. But like the music telegraphs that's supposed to be a thing? Yeah, like they're trying to be like, oh yeah, this is supposed to be a horror movie. Um, The closet, ooh. Like I think they're trying to like telegraph her growing paranoia. But I it's guess. not good. So she enters Roman's study. Right. And she starts like a big old tape player. Yes. And she is like really scared and like the music frightens her. It is a real song written by Charles Manson. So they licensed music from Charles Manson for this film. Yes. All right. So if you get the soundtrack for this film, there's music by Charlie Manson on it. Charlie, you guys friends? Cool. And uh, she is startled when J.C. Bring. Like, comes up behind her. Yes. And he comforts her. He is clearly, like, her her main ally. Yeah. She's annoyed about Abigail and Woljack. Uh, because they're kind of acting like they own the place. They were ba- they were house-sitting while she was gone. Now they're kind of Sharon-sitting. Because they, like, you don't want this heavily, heavily pregnant lady alone mm-hmm. in the house. So they're kind of, like, watching her until Roman gets back. But they're infantilizing her. But Hillary Duff has done nothing for herself and talks in this annoying baby voice. Yeah. It's none of this is good. So then this is both the scene where they both look like babies. Yes, because they're swimming. And he is swimming in tidy whities. Yes. <laughs> they had bathing suits in the sixties. Yeah, but like and it's like, it's got like really bad, like red trim. Like he looks like a giant baby. And she's wearing like a shapeless white, like tube dress. Yeah. That is especially shapeless because they're fitting it over her fake pregnancy bump. So it's these two giant babies. And this is when they have the conversation about, uh, are we slaves to our own destiny? Can you alter your fate? Do you think that we are slaves to our own destiny? This again. I mean, do you think it's possible to alter the course of our fate? Or is our story just our book written before we're even born? I like to think that anything's possible. I think there's infinite choices, infinite realities. We're probably living out different versions of our own story for, who knows, probably forever. At least until we get it right. Smile. Nope. I want to change my fate. I want to change my fate. And if you had the chance to change your fate, would you? Yeah. My Merida is about as good as Hillary Duff's Sharon Tate. And when this comes up again, I was like, why are we like drilling this home so much? Like we've spent way more time on this concept of fate and all this other stuff. Than we did on, like, making sure I care about these characters Yeah, they really are hitting fate. Fate, 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 fatey McFate face. Uh, so what what scene is next after this? So, Eric and Samuels reminds her that they need to, uh, they have dinner together the next night. Right. And then he leaves. 
outside without his pants. Yeah. <laughs> he just pieces out in his underpants. Yeah. Okay, bud. He's gone. Um, Bye. So there, it night falls. Um, you pause the movie. We realize we're only 40 minutes in. And my next note is, I'd have beer. Yes. <laughs> uh, something happens and I just get up and leave for a second. And then they're sitting there and Abigail is reading in bed and someone watches her. Yes. And it is the music from Battletoads. Yes. The, this following scene that takes place sounds exactly like the pause music when you play Battletoads on the NES. I will try to put them side by side here. So the Watcher is the creepy girl from The Walking Trail. Yes. Who stands there and just waves at Abigail. Yeah, and Abigail doesn't, like, scream. She's just like, this is... She's, like, more confused than terrified. Yeah, she's just like, huh. Like, you shouldn't be there. Wolchek has crashed on the couch, which doesn't make any sense. Because he's been sleeping with Abigail. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense So I guess... And they don't, like, have a line that explains, like, she couldn't sleep so she wanted to read... Yeah, none of that is ever explained. That is um, weird. And then we get, uh, Wolchek's crashed from the couch and someone points the gun at him. We get the scary music again, and then someone sweeps past. We see, like, a figure sweep past. Yeah. And then I was like, where have I seen this shot before? It's in the murder reenactments in Hot Fuzz. Yes. I, I think it's also an alien. Yeah, I, but, like, it's executed much more closely to Hot Fuzz. Yeah. Like, Alien did it in a way that wasn't supposed to be funny. Right, right. Hot Fuzz did. And this looks closer to that. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So, Sharon sits up, terrified in bed, and the tape player has kicked on again. Yes. And it's this weird song, and like, with that back masking thing that will get explained later. But it sounds kind of like scary screaming. Mm Mm-hmm. So she sees the man from her nightmare, and then we see the other girl from the walking trail holding her at knife point and shoving her into the living room. Jay has recovered his pants. Yeah. But is being put into a noose. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a noose thrown over the rafter, so both ends of the rope are made into a noose. Jay is stuffed into one end, and they're going to put Sharon in the other. Walchek is ho- hogtied on the floor. And Abigail is kind of like strapped down and the male Manson family member who, whose name is Tex, Mm -hmm. because these are all based on real people as well. uh, He says, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. Which is apparently a real quote, Mm -hmm. but it's also a really stupid one. It's also, the only people who know what was said in that room are the people who came out alive. Right. And it sounds... Exactly like something someone would say they said later that sounds cool. But it doesn't sound cool. Like, let's use it in other context. I'm Noah, and I'm here to do Noah's work. Wait, so do you work for Noah, or are you Noah? I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the de- So your own work. I'm the dog, and I'm here to do the dog's business. Not inside the house, you're not. Yeah, it's dumb. It's a dumb quote. So then Jay is shot- Jay begs them not to kill Sharon because she's so pregnant. Right. 
So then they say, we'll start with you, pretty boy. He is shot in the stomach off screen. We don't see the gun. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't see anything. And then blood pours unconvincingly out of Jonathan Bennett's mouth. Yeah. <laughs> like, if you've ever been to a haunted house, that, like, kind of like, bleh. It, like, it, he clearly chomps down on a blood squib. Yeah, it's it's not very good. And uh, Wolchek breaks out, but he's stabbed by one of the girls as he tries to drag himself to safety. Abigail runs, and then Sharon begs to live until she has her baby. Yeah, she just wants to have her baby. Uh, Abigail is caught. She and Wolchek are brutally stabbed to death. And then I have, let me get this straight. They only have knives, and there's the same number of them as residents in the house. Mm-hmm. There is one gun. There's one gun, yes. Tex has a gun. So Sharon wakes up screaming, and Abigail and Wolchek run and comfort her. Yeah, and, like, there's a lot of, like, especially what happens to, uh, what's his name, Jay? Yeah. Uh, his hands are tied in front. Like, that's the only way that he is bound. Mm-hmm. Like, if, if my hands were bound this way and someone put a ner- noose around my neck, I would then realize, oh, they're going to kill me. I should actively try to prevent this. Right. Surely I could get killed in the process, but I will definitely die if I do nothing. Right. So just, and this is not me, like, saying that the people in real life should have done more. It's me saying that the director did not correctly convince the audience that these people were in peril. Right. I there are crime scene pictures of the Tate uh the not the LaBianca murders but like the Tate Folger Sebring Wolchek murders. Yeah. Uh I did not look at them. Okay. I that's I not you. something that you're I, willing to do for this show. It's not something I felt the need to do. We're um, we're here to judge this media, not we're not actually a true crime podcast. I'm sorry to everyone that started getting into this because we pretended to be a true crime podcast, but we're not. Stay sexy. Watch bad movies. Um, so it's the next morning. It's Friday, August 8th, 1969. Yeah, I, I just want to real quick say the only interesting thing that has happened has now been erased and was a dream. Sharon opens the fridge and sees a dead thing covered in bad CGI maggots that she's hallucinating. Yeah. So then Abigail tries to console her and they kind of um, they kind of have an argument over whether Abigail and Wolchek are patronizing Sharon. They think that uh, they're protecting Sharon from herself. What, what did you think of this scene? Because to me, it was just like, oh, we better include another scare. Because this doesn't do anything. Yeah, there's not really a reason to have it there. Um... Because it doesn't, it doesn't really, like, build into Sharon's paranoia. It's just a catalyst for her to be upset again. Yeah, and it doesn't... And there are better ways to have done that. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't play into the whole premonition thing. No. Because it's not like she later sees something covered in maggots. It's just her brain being weird. So then it comes out that Charles Manson's been to the house before. A few times. And, like, Wolchick and Abigail don't really know him, but he's been to parties at the house before. Yeah, he's dropping off this weird music. Yeah, he was trying to get a record deal from the owner, previous owner of the house who was a record exec. And so they have this argument where they kind of, like, 
And to be fair. To be fair. Sharon's behavior has seemed really erratic. Right. And like she's having horrible nightmares. So Abigail and Wolchek feel like they're protecting her from herself. Right. And then I had a moment. Oh yeah, Roman Polanski made Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. Another movie about gaslighting a pregnant woman who is in a supernatural situation and in over her head. Yeah, because they say something like, this isn't some Roman Polanski movie. Yeah, this isn't one of Roman's movies. And I remember thinking like, ooh, that was kind of a shot at themselves. Kind of being like, if Roman had made this, perhaps this would be a better film. So then um, we see Steven again. Right. He's working on his car. Sharon finds him. Steven's like, oh, I changed the code in the gate. And Sharon is really nice to him and asks for some advice about the tape player. Yes. So he... He goes over the backmasking and yeah. plays the... They're chanting Helter Skelter. Yeah, they're like, he's like, if you play this backwards, you'll hear this. He's like, oh, what was that? He's like, oh, it's Helter Skelter. The Beatles song. You know, the title of that Beatles song? And then Sharon's like, well... But when I play it in reverse... That's clever. What's it saying? Helter Skelter. You know, like the Beatles song? It sounds like some kind of chant or mantra, almost like the foretelling of a prophecy. All I can say is that someone went to a lot of trouble to make this thing. Why can the words only be heard when it's played backwards? It's intended to be subliminal, audible only on an unconscious level. It's mostly used in advertising to convince people to buy things that they don't need. It's used all over the media, radio, TV, movies, music, to spread messages. What, what kind of messages? I guess all kinds. Even satanic messages. Like that, you heard a Beatles song and you were like, they, this is probably the devil. And then I realized, because not only does he uh, like build things yeah. around the, the his home and around this like property, but he also provides uh, all of the exposition needed for this part of the movie. So he makes things apparent. Get it? Stephen Parent, he's a parent. His role is also completely different. It's a in... great joke. I'm sorry, I need more praise. No. He is also the character who's most dramatically changed. Oh, Stephen really? Parent was not the caretaker of the house. Uh, the caretaker was a completely different man. Uh, William Garretson, who was friends with Stephen Parent. Oh, Stephen Parent happened to be the wrong place that night. Oh. Saw the Manson family show up. Said that, like, he wouldn't tell anybody if they let him go. But they didn't let him go. Oh. Uh, That's terrible. The real caretaker was questioned for Stephen Parent's murder. Wow, really? Yeah, he didn't do it. Well, obviously. Um, but he was just, like, a guy who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. He had nothing to do with Sharon Tate. At all. 
Interesting. He is kind of brought in as this, like, I hate to, he's the least famous person involved in the murders. Yeah. So they didn't, it also erases the, well, where was the, what was the caretaker doing during this? Yeah. That was late at night and, like, the caretaker could have, I don't know, I didn't look into what William Garretson was really doing. But if guns didn't go off and it wasn't Mm. super loud, if it wasn't any louder than, like, a party. Yeah. The caretaker might have thought nothing was happening. Yeah, it definitely would have muddled this already terrible story. Yeah. If they had to include this other character. So, uh, Stephen goes on this, like, anti-conformist tirade because he's the sick, he's an 18-year-old in 1969. Yep. Um, and then Sharon gets a phone call in Stephen's trailer, and it's from Charles Manson. Yes, which we don't get to hear, which is stupid. Yeah. And they, they cast an actor as Charles Manson. There was no reason not to do this. Yeah. So then, uh, Sharon, night is falling, and Sharon is packing up. She's gonna leave. Yes, which is the smartest thing I've heard. And then she looks at her wedding gown and has a sentimental moment. And we see actual archival footage of Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski's wedding. Yeah, who is not Hilary Duff, and thus breaks any sort of connection you had. It shows how cheap this movie is. Yeah. Because they couldn't even, like, throw together a quick sequence for that. Yeah, I mean, they could have either, A, had a real quick shot of, you know, hired an actor to be Roman Polanski and then uh, just shot a scene like that. They could have, B, not had a flashback at all, because really, it's not necessary. Or C, they could have just made this the, like, end-all, be-all of the conceit of this film. And no, they couldn't have done that. I was going to say they could have played the interview in the beginning, but that might not be a real interview. In any case, it's dumb. <laughs> like, my thought is that they could have done a quick flashback scene of her and Abigail talking about her wedding. or Yeah. yeah it, her it, and one of the actors they already had. But I, I think they just wanted to use that footage. Yeah, which... And it, it, all it does is hurt the film. Yeah, so then the phone rings and it's Roman. She cries in relief and begs to begs him to take her away. He's in London, so he can't, like, just come back. Mm-hmm. Abigail and Wolczyk beg to, for her to let them in because they're worried about her. Yes. She locks herself in the bathroom. Um, and Because she's now tub. convinced Abigail and Wolczyk are in on the murder plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she turns on the bathtub and it begins to run blood. It's fill up with blood or possibly red wine. You know what? We never really get an answer to what's in the tub. The lights go out. The bathtub runs over with blood. Helter Skelter's written on the wall. Or red wine. Helter Skelter's written on the wall. Helter Skelter's written on the wall. Uh, My next note is, I hope the members of Sharon Tate's family are permitted to line up and punch Hilary Duff in the face. Yeah. (laughs) Because by this point, the movie's like offensive. And I'm also, like, I'm rolling my eyes at this point because I just look at Laura and go, this is another dream. Yeah, it's too <laughs> clearly telegraphed to being a nightmare. And then what do you know? She wakes up and she's still in the camper? Yeah, with a parent. With Steven. <laughs> and then she has, like, she has a Braxton Hicks contraction, essentially. Yeah. Like, she's not going into labor, but she, like... Has a stress contraction, essentially. And Stephen goes to make a phone call and the phone line is cut. Uh, 
she tells him to go get his car. Steven's a fairly tall guy, and you see him shirtless, so he's fairly muscular. Mm -hmm. Even eight and a half months pregnant, Sharon Tate is not a big girl. Yeah, like, especially Hillary Duff Sharon Tate is not a big girl. He should be able to get her to the car. Like, he should be able to literally, like, fireman princess carry her to the car. And he gets to the car. He has trouble starting it because it's a horror movie. Yeah, he's very rattled. He can't get the car to start or move. And then, in typical fashion, some creepy guy starts walking up the driveway. Mm -hmm. And Stephen Parent rolls down the window and goes, Can I help you? Dude, you just, you were the one talking about the Satanistic cults. You were the one that realized that the phone was caught, was cut. Like, now's not the time to be like, hey, a friendly passerby. Yeah. Maybe he needs my help more than the pregnant woman who's going into labor at this time. So, uh, the electric wires are pulled. We see a a female hand pull the electric wires. So clearly one of the girls from the walking trail. Um, Ugh, this is a gross movie. As the Manson family arrives. And we're clearly, like, getting into the climax of the film. Yeah. And by climax, we mean something actually happening. Yeah, like, not the dream sequence. Sharon gets in the car, urges Stephen to back up over him. Like, just just hit him. Yeah, just go! Uh, the dude breaks the car window. They make a run for it. And Wolchek wakes up on the couch as Tex begins to shoot. One shot, two shot, three shot. I was trying to keep track of how many shots were fired to see if it was more than six. Mm. Because no one ever reloads the gun. Yeah. I think I get to five. So they actually do keep it. Um, Sharon, Wolchek, Steven, and Abigail begin to like lock the house down and barricade the doors. Very poorly. Because, like, this entire house is nothing but glass and windows. Yeah. And, like, they barricade one door, like, a lot... And then you see someone run away, and there's, like, another door. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, what about that one? Well, and then, like, we see that a window is open. And the two girls chant, uh, little pigs, little pigs, let us in, or we'll huff and we'll puff and we'll blow your house in. Mm-hmm. And they chant it over and over, and it's supposed to be very creepy. Yeah, and it was creepy. In The Shining. Like, why rip off one of the most famous scary movies of all time? I mean, half this movie's a rip off of Rosemary's Baby. You could argue that that was done on purpose. Yeah. But, like, oh yeah, let's rip off Jack Nicholson. So then, uh, one of the girls tries to get in one of the windows, and Sharon slams the window on her hand. On the girl's hand. Yes. I believe I cheer because something is happening. Yeah. And then someone gets in through an open window. Right. It's Jay! What do you know? It's Jay. So, he, the the gang's all here to get murdered. So Sharon cries in relief to see him. Tex gets in. Again, Jay is trying to protect Sharon. Uh, I have green shirt girl because I we never hear their names. No, I don't think we're, they're, they're kind of like this outside force. Like, we don't identify them as people. Yeah. It's just evil that is coming to. I believe she's actually called the green, what I was calling green shirt girl. I believe she's credited as being called yellow. Oh. And the other girl is called Sadie. Okay. Uh, based on the credits. So, uh, yellow threatens Sharon repeatedly and says like, you know, I'm going to kill you and I'm not going to feel a thing. Yeah. 
Wolchek is tied up. The nooses are set up. We're setting the stage. Um, we're setting the stage for yeah the murders that Sharon has seen this whole time. Although every time the murders have happened, we've seen more people involved. The first time we only saw Sharon and Jay. Right, The right. second time we saw Abigail and Wolchek. Which is interesting to me because that's right before she begins to accuse Abigail and Wolchek. Mm-hmm. And then this time we see Stephen. Now, yeah, now Stephen. Now Stephen, in the real Manson family murders, would have already been dead. Yeah, he dies in the car. Yeah. Um. So there's a little bit of a, huh, this is different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe this is where we see Sharon grab, like... Did we ever really get a good look at whatever the hell she grabbed? We didn't. Uh, we don't get a good look yet. Uh, Abigail is also in the rafters. Yeah, she's like hiding in the rafters. She's trying not to scream because she figures she is the best shot right now. Yeah. Because she's not, they don't know she's in the house. And once again, Sharon Tate is seated on the couch with her hands tied around, like her wrists are tied. There's a noose around her neck. But, and there's like a girl next to her with a knife. Mm Mm-hmm. You could do something. So I'm like, try. Come on. Yeah, so like, Jay is still begging them not to kill Sharon. But we see, the audience now sees that Sharon has what looks like a pocket knife. Yeah, I thought maybe it was like a razor blade for shaving. I could never really get a good look. Yeah, it looks like a Swiss Army knife. Yeah. Uh, So she goads Tex and then slashes at him with the knife. And Abigail takes uh, advantage of the resulting melee to jump from the rafters and do a frog splash on one of the girls. Yeah, there's a straight up frog splash. I was like, wait a minute, what's happening? In the melee, Jay's manages to free himself and he frees Wolchek. <laughs> and then Abigail bashes Sadie's face in by accident. Yeah. By essentially throwing her through the coffee table. Yeah, and she falls, she hits her head on the corner. Yeah. Uh, and then... I believe Abigail's the one who's, who, like, looks at Sharon, and Sharon's like, run? No, that was in one of the... I think that was in the past sequence. I think that was in one of the nightmare sequences. Well, there's definitely a sequence that I at least want to bring up now, where someone is, like, flat on the floor and gets, like... I thought it was during the sequence because, like, they kill a bunch of people. And, like, now they have, like, the odds. And uh, Abigail runs past Sharon who is only tied up because there's a noose around her neck and her hands are tied in front. She could either take the noose off her neck herself or her friend could do it before she runs away. Yeah, I think that was during a nightmare sequence. (laughs) Because the next thing that happens here is Stephen, Abigail, and Sharon are hiding in the trailer. They run to the trailer, all three of them together. Right. We don't see Jay run with them, but Jay shows up in the trailer later, like he's been here the whole time. When does the bathroom scene happen? Uh, we'll get to it. Okay. Um, so Abigail begins to panic that she's not going to die, and then Sharon is comforting Abigail. And then we're in the bathroom. Yes. Uh, Yellow is stalking the house, and we see this weirdly long scene where Yellow just looks at herself in the mirror. Yes. And it's 316. It is 316. I'm like, oh my god. If glass shatters right now, I'm just going to sing the Stone Cold Steve Austin theme. That's all I want right now. And then she gets attacked and they bash her over the head with the back of a toilet. Yeah, the toilet tank lid. Which, first off. No, what happens before that is Wolchek chokes her out. 
And she taps out. Yeah, yeah. She, oh, yeah. Because I start screaming, it's the million dollar dream. She's tapping out. And then, like, she just, after, like, five seconds of choking, he's like, all right, she's probably dead. And then she's not. And then she he grabs the porcelain uh, lid to the toilet, smashes her over the head. And she gets back up immediately. Well, that would kill you. Yeah. <laughs> but she's like, brah! She hawks up. And then Stone Cold grabs her and drowned her in the tub, which is full for reasons? Yeah, we... <laughs> I don't know. Um, so then Tex is crawling around bleeding. In the... Uh, we're in the camper. Steven is setting up a ham radio to call for help. Because the phone lines were cut. Yes. And he's like, "There's a, I think there's a ham radio in here. And he pulls up a sheet and he's like, I got to put it back together. Because it's established earlier that he likes to take things apart. Yeah, so he'd been playing with it. So it's like, where's the ham radio? Well, I took it apart for fun. <laughs> yeah, Abigail apologizes for to Sharon for being paranoid. And uh, Tex breaks into the camper. And, and then Stephen goes, oh, well, there's this long scene. Yeah. Where he's looking around the camper. Cause, he cause doesn't they see hide. any of them. <laughs> and then Stephen goes, hey, asshole. Yes. And hits him with a shovel. Stephen would have, for this to have worked, Stephen had to have been hiding directly next to Tex. Yeah. Because he, like, peeks into this room. He's like, I don't see them. And then, boom, shovel. It's like, you didn't look slightly left. (laughs) It's also like, they clearly want to do, like, a nerd action hero thing. Because Stephen isn't wearing his glasses in several scenes, but he's wearing his glasses in this scene. Yeah. Which is odd. So dumb. So they all crawl out of Stephen's, like, hobbit hole trailer area. And Sharon takes Tex's gun and shoots him after saying the worst pre-mortem one-liner ever. Fuck you! That's all she says. It's not, it's not like elegant. It's not something about fate. It's not something about the devil. It's not anything that would tie the thematic threads. Something about her baby. Um, and then Wolchek, uh, Abigail and Jay, like, immediately come to embrace her. Steven puts his arm around her. Wolchek staggers out to meet them. And then when they realize it's Wolchek, they all, like, kind of envelop him, too. And the five of them stagger back to the house as dawn breaks. We get this long pan of, like, the skyline and the Hollywood sign. And the gate seems to close over the narration of the conversation from earlier. Between Jay and Sharon about whether you can change your fate. And cops arrive and start speaking to people. And then it pans over and we see five white sheeps on the ground covering bodies. And Sharon stands over her own corpse and dramatically reveals her own face. Yeah. Now, granted, at this point you might have been thinking, like I was, oh, this is like an alternate timeline of like... What if they didn't get killed? And then it turns out that they still did get killed. And I guess this is like her fantasy. And it's this weird narration of her saying, like, I'd like to be a fairy princess, a little doll with gossamer wings over like footage of Jay and Sharon from the uh, Corvette earlier. Yeah. Or convertible earlier. And it doesn't like, it doesn't fit anything well there's one thing it does fit because she says 
I guess I see my life through rose-colored glasses. And in that scene, she was actually wearing rose-colored sunglasses? Oh, it's all coming together! Like, and she calls her life a fairy tale, which it clearly isn't, because she's, like, died in this horrific nightmare. And then uh, Sharon walks away as the media begin to swarm her home. Stephen, Wolchek, Jay, and Abigail are waiting for her, and they're all clean and uninjured. Mm-hmm. Um, because Wolchek, like, was injured in the fight yeah. with, not, like, badly, but he had the, like, action movie cut in his face. Yeah. But now they're all whole and perfect, and Sharon is holding a bundle clearly intended to be her son. Right. And it's the same interview footage as the beginning, and it's clearly intended to be haunting. Yeah. It's not. It's not. There's nothing haunting in this movie where haunting is the second word in the title. Um, Sharon Tate's younger sister, who is still alive, hates this movie. Yeah! Um, she's, she is so, like, she's very, very upset about this film. It's, it's really dumb. And, like, I think you could have, like, really surprised the audience and being like, she saw it coming and this is an alternate timeline where she survives. But it doesn't commit to that. Like, if it had been, like, almost, like, if she had spent the whole last day, like, uh, booby trapping the house full Home Alone style. Yeah, that would have been interesting. That, that would have been a way to go about it. And, like, the director, uh, Daniel Farrens, like, gave an interview where he was like, I hope that, like, she didn't think, you know, that this was, like, exploiting her sister or mean to her sister. I think it's a power narrative. Yeah, because <laughs> we also had that thought where we're like, is the message of this movie they could have lived had they tried yeah, like, the message of this movie is incredibly unclear. Like, I I wondered if... Is it that you can change your fate? Is it that you can't change your fate? Yeah, I, I don't quite understand what it was trying to, like, tell me. It made me wonder if, like, the first two dream sequences where I'm like, just fight back, just do it. Is that the reaction they wanted me to have? So that I would cheer when they actually do suddenly fight back? Because it did, like, get me in that at one point I turned to you and said, it's a shame I can't care about any of these characters because I know they're all going to die at the end. Yeah. And then they don't. But then they do. Yeah, like, the ending is clearly very um, muddled. Mm -hmm. It's very, this movie was very badly received. Right. I'm going to fix this movie. Ready? This, this, This is how you could save this whole thing. All right, get rid of the part where she, like, sees her own face and stuff like that. Uh, She has this premonition about these people coming, and she is able to, like, successfully get out of it. And then she has her son. Mm -hmm. And then her son uh, is going on a school trip to France. Mm -hmm. And he has a premonition that the plane's going to go down. And it turns out that this is a Final Destination prequel. Ugh. Boom! Fixed! This movie is so bad. This movie is awful! And like, because one of the things we always talk about 
is it's weird when horror gets nominated for a Razzie. Right. Because, like, horror in itself is usually, like, kind of bad. Like, don't get me wrong, there are great horror movies. Yeah. But then when there are bad horror movies, they're usually still a good time. Because it's a silly, stupid horror movie. Yeah. It has to be something especially bad to get nominated and be a horror movie. And this is especially bad. Because it's also, like, in very poor taste and poorly executed in every way. And not a good horror movie. Yeah, There's like, no scares in it. I Like, we were done the movie, I was like, that movie was actually offensive. Yeah. Um, because it made, it attempted to make, like, a supernatural thriller horror thing out of this murder. Yeah. Um, it's, it's bad. Um, there are 13 producers of this film, but only 10 credited actors. Yes. Hilary Duff, also one of the producers. Um. Because yeah, you actually say, like, this was a play. Yeah, because there's so few people in it. And, like, you really could do this as a play. There's only, like, two, three sets. And a lot of things could have been restaged to be back in the main living room. Yeah. And, like, it almost would be more interesting as a play. It would be hard to make it less interesting. That is true. So, according to the film's editor, I told you I had a couple pieces of, like, relief. Yeah, hit Uh, me. So, several scenes meant to be played normally had to be played in slow motion because they had a hard time getting this movie up to feature length. Oh my god! So I told you this, the the hint I gave you earlier was it dovetailed with another show. (laughs) They pulled a full-on Garth Marenghi's Dark Place? Yes. On purpose. This is running, like, 12 minutes under. So, just anything that could be slow-mo was slow-mo. Which makes sense, because, like, the really long shots of the bodies, the use of B-roll. There is a lot of B-roll. There's so much time where it's just, like... Skyline. Skyline and, like, time-lapse to show that, like, time passed. Because I said out loud, like, you don't need to show me the sun setting. If it's dark out, I'll know it's nighttime now. Yeah. So... Uh, Daniel Farren's, he's mostly known for this kind of film, like, uh, for horror movies. And not necessarily great ones. Yeah. But often ones based on true events. Okay. So his known for, because I know how much you love known for. I do love a good game of known for. Is the Amityville Murders. Ooh, the bad Amityville horror movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh... The Haunting in Connecticut, which was supposedly based on true events. I, I vaguely remember that one. Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers. He made The Curse one? Oh, that's like, is that the Paul Rudd one? It is the Paul Rudd one. It is the Paul Rudd one. Crystal Lake Memories, The Complete History of Friday the 13th, the documentary. Okay. Um, A bunch of like Jason documentaries that were like the making ofs. All right. This is writing screenplays. The Tooth Fairy, the horror one. Okay. Histories, mysteries, but only the Amityville episodes. Okay. So, like, he's clearly, like, a true crime guy. All right. He also did documentaries that he directed over uh, The Haunting in Connecticut, The Elm Street Legacy, and Scream, The Inside Story. Okay, so... So he's a big horror movie fan. Yeah, he's a bad My Favorite Murder podcast. And his most recent directing and producing credit was... Um, 
is listed on the, uh, is the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson. Another, that's talking about Nicole Brown Simpson's last days. He's going to make an OJ movie? He made an OJ movie. It came out in December. Is it a horror movie? It's listed on IMDb as being like a crime movie or a thriller. All right. It's not about Nicole Brown Simpson, like, having premonitions about her husband. Um, Her ex-husband. Or or another person. I don't know. I'm not going to get into this OJ debate right now. Yeah, it's a very, very tacky, another tacky true crime movie about, like, what the last days of Nicole Brown Simpson's life looked like. Terrible. So, it's, uh, yeah, it's bad. It's, it's not good. And it's, he is trying to, like, do the same thing. where He's trying to kind of, like, lend the mythos around her death. Right. Gross. Really, really gross. Yeah, he feels very, um, he likes exploiting murders. Well, I think this is clearly a stay tuned. Oh, God, yes. So, uh, but now it's time for the big question. Is it worse than Cats? Yes. I think it's worse than Cats as well. I don't think it will win the Razzie. No. Because I don't think it's burning enough, like... It's not hurting as many careers because no one's sitting around going Hillary Duff, the rising star, whose career was ruined by this terrible piece of film. I, I think because it's got Ian McKellen in it and stuff like that, Cats will probably win. But this is a worse movie than Cats. Absolutely. It is without merit. Yes. Like, like I can't, I, there's nothing good I can say about the Haunting of Sharon Tate. Yeah, there's... I, I could say a nice thing or two about Cats. Yeah, like, there there are performances in Cats that are pretty good. There are moments in Cats that are almost approaching entertaining. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's nothing, literally not a thing in this movie that's redeemable. All right, I think that uh, puts a bow on this episode. Yep, yep. All right, so that's going to do it for this episode of uh, Stay Doomed. What do you want to watch next week? I think we'll be watching The Fanatic, starring John Travolta and directed by Fred Durst. Fred Durst of Limp Biscuit fame. Uh, where can people reach us if they want to talk to us about this very film, The Fanatic? You can email us at The Stay Doomed Show or on Facebook and Twitter at Stay Doomed. Yeah, let us know what you think. We may read it right here on this very show. Uh, where can people see us live? Uh, this Friday, uh, February 28th, we are performing in the Adult Fan Fiction co- Competition in Bethesda, Maryland. Yeah, so be sure to come see that. It's going to be a fantastic time at the Flying Bee Theater. If you want to talk to me about Sharon Tate's spectacular ass. If you want to discuss the exploitations of victims in the latest true crime phase, and you think it's super ironic that it happens to Sharon Tate, given that her mother became a huge victims advocate, I'm at Priorities. Until next time, that was research I couldn't fit in the narrative. Stay doomed. Stay sexy, watch bad movies. We're gonna get sued. <laughs>